So again, I'm doing something a little different than I've done before. I have worked on this particular episode quite a bit, like a, an immense amount in the last couple weeks, because I think it's in a very important episode to bring you. I'm recording it on the 4th of July, so I had to wait until all the, uh, in Arizona, uh, fireworks are relatively legal. It, you can get into some illegal levels of them, but it, we had a lot of noise going on around us, which was fun. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. But I had to wait until that calmed down before I could record, so I'm doing this a little bit later than I expected. However, I think that this is also an important day for me to record this because what I'm going to talk about today is a lawsuit that's happening in Bakersfield, California over First Amendment rights on uh, college campuses, uh, this one in particular, obviously. And it, this show, I think, is going to be a little long. Uh, there's definitely, it's going to be heavy. I'm going to be reading a lot of articles up front, but I've got lots of great clips for the back end of it. I did my own research on this, which is kind of important, and I'll get to that in a second. Um, so I, and I only used resources that I found on my own, unless I credit them. Um, I do have some recordings. So I guess this, I'm doing like a little housekeeping up here, up in front, just so you guys know. I do have some recordings that... I'm not going to post because uh, they're, if you're interested in something that I don't have a link to, I have a personal recording of it. You are more than welcome to email me. I'm not trying to hide anything or anything of that nature. I just, it, there's no, I'm, I generally only post links to stuff. So being, and then also I, this is probably going to be the most heavily edited episode that I've done. Uh, not just m myself, although I really try hard never to con uh, cut out content, just to cut out stuff that's like noise fillers or uh, boost some stuff where it was quiet because some of the recordings were quiet in some of the parts of them. And I'm not great at editing, so you might hear some points where you're like, eh, she definitely edited there. But I don't cut out content. I'm... And... It, I'm not trying to like cherry pick or put together things. I, I, I cut out some space to, for time brevity because I've got lots of clips, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to make sure that I'm explaining that up front so that you know, if you're listening to a clip I put, it, I have not cut out any significant content from it. And mostly like ums and likes, <laughs> which I do to myself. And also when I stutter because I don't, I, I, do a lot of stuttering and I try to minimize that for y'all, especially if I get super stuck on something because it's woo, tough. There's some important takeaways from what I'm about ready to do. There's some things that the reason why I find this important and I, I thought I would share those up front, which again is a little different than I'm used to. And the first thing that I really wanted to talk about was the importance of local media. Because this particular story that I'm going to be sharing with you guys uh, is not being talked about anywhere other than basically locally. It's certainly not anything you'd find on like mainstream media or that uh, you're going to run across unless you know like what keywords you might use to look up. So it's really important. If you don't read a local media site or news uh, outlet just so you 
get a feel for what's being talked about in your local media, I'm going to probably encourage you to do that more than once throughout this episode. We have some really big problems in our uh, higher education system right now. This is a going to be a really great case for that. I'm definitely, this is going to point out some problems that we're having with that. And I don't know that I'll talk about that as much, but I want you to keep that in mind as I'm running through this story. There is a prolific uh, logic fallacy in media today. So much we have read. It's a, become such a problem that we don't even know it's happening to us anymore. We aren't even thinking about it. We just read something and hear it and we're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Or yeah, right. He's a bad guy. Just whatever. Whatever he did is bad or whatever. It, it's happening all the time. It's been happening for a long time, of course. But it's become incredibly ridiculous. And the main point of this entire thing is the erosion of our First Amendment rights, and particularly on campuses. If you don't know anything about the Chicago principles, I learned about this in my investigation. I have a, a link, a Wikipedia link, you know, the Book of Knowledge link to the Chicago principles. I think it's an important thing to realize that not every college is, has, um, is, is adopting these kinds of ideas. And basically it's that freedom of speech and freedom of expression on college campuses in the United States need to be fair. It actually started in 2014 over people, I guess, arguing or trying to protest against certain commencement speakers. Um, so there's a lot of information about it. I, I didn't want to dig into it too much, but I did find this uh, a, an interesting point that is not also talked about very much in media. So there's that. All right. You know, we also in this episode are going to have a cast of characters and I'll probably mostly refer to these folks by their last names. So what I thought I would do is introduce them now, give you kind of an idea of who they are and why they're in the story. And I'm going to start, but there, there will be two that I'll probably refer to by their first name. And that is uh, Aaron Miller and Matt Garrett. So I'm going to start with Aaron and for transparency and to be fair, uh, I have a bias in this for sure because Aaron and I have been very close friends since we were in high school together where we used to like hang out at night and talk philosophy and history and current events and personal stuff that was going on in our lives. And her and I have traversed through this life in some very similar fashions. Uh, we both did not graduate from high school and then went back to get higher education. She's gotten a little more of it than I have, but uh, we both were our single moms. Her son and my daughter are uh, biracial. We've just, we have a lot of similar values, but the one thing that's always been interesting is, is that we've also had a lot of contradictory values. I would, I've always been a far more liberal minded She's, uh, has some more conservative views on things, but somehow we've always been able to have really great conversations and interact with each other. And even when we don't agree, and, it, and sometimes we haven't agreed on some big things, we've always respected each other enough to uh, validate and have a conversation even when we don't agree. And it, it's, it's a rare thing. And so I value her friendship 
and it does give me a bias in this. So I, I want to, I, I, I think it's fair to say that out, out the gate. Then we've got, uh, let's see, uh, Matt Garrett, Dr. Matt Garrett. He is a professor, uh, Bakersfield College. It's, it's a community college that's in the Kern County, Kern Community College District. So it's uh, KCCD is the abbreviation for that. He is the founder of the Liberty Institute, which we may, I don't, I'm not going to talk about that a whole bunch, but it is something that's valid. He is also suing with Aaron. So I'll probably refer to Aaron and Matt since, uh, even though I haven't met Matt or even actually ever spoken to him, I'm, but I've heard lots of what he has to say. And in conversations, generally Aaron and I use his name as Matt. So that's what I'm most comfortable talking about with him. So I'll probably continue to do that. Then we have Dr. Oliver Rosales. He is a professor at Bakersfield as well. And he is one of the folks that had filed the complaint that got this lawsuit's ball rolling. So he's kind of an important character and we'll talk about him a lot. So he's Rosales. He is a doctor and a professor at Bakersfield University. I'm sorry, Bakersfield College. And then there's Professor Andrew Bond. He is also a professor at Bakersfield College. He is an, one of the authors of one of the opinion pieces that I will be discussing. And he also is one of the people who filed the complaint. So Rosales and Bond filed complaints against Aaron and Matt, which I definitely will get to, but they were the folks that filed the complaints. So we will unravel that later. There's another person. I'm not sure what his title was. He was an adjunct professor. His name was Octavio Barajas. And I have him listed as the provocateur or the instigator. Um, he no longer teaches at Bakersfield. I think he got a job at... Uh, I, I looked it up and it, it's not... He's, his most important aspect is that he was a huge contributor to how part of this got rolling to begin with and that he was definitely pushing for a slant or a, a narrative as the story unfolds. So Barajas is a character's name you'll hear. There's also Christopher Hine, who happens to be the general counsel for the KCCD, and he was the person who was in charge or deployed the independent investigation that's really why we are going to be talking about a lawsuit today. So so that's where we are right now. I figured the best way to start this is to allow you guys to hear what the backstory is a little bit. And there was a presentation that Aaron and Matt, well, that Matt did and Aaron introduced him for that happened in September of 2019. But this all really started in like, April of 2019, and I think Erin does a good job um, when she's introducing him of giving us a rundown of what happened. So I'm going to play her part of that presentation first, even though it's a little bit out of sync um, chronologically. Oh, and that's the other thing is that after this, I'm going to try really hard to, or I've arranged this to be more chronological in nature. So that will give us, I'm going to try to stay with that, but I'm pulling this 
really out of chronological order. But rather than me explain all of what happened and how this all kicked off, I'm going to let Aaron explain it. A series of events at the end of the last academic year and over the summer illustrate the urgency of the Liberty Institute's mission. In April of 2019, unauthorized stickers appeared around campus, including one damaging or vandalizing an event posters. The stickers contained phrases that some would say challenged ideas increasingly officially endorsed and espoused by Bakersfield College. Other faculty members described the stickers as racist, given their site of origin, and the vandalism as a hate crime. These faculty pressured campus administration to take official action. As a result, a controversy erupted when my colleague, Dr. Garrett, publicly questioned the atypical behavior of our college administration. He questioned whether the stickers actually might be protest speech, protesting the use of taxpayer funds to push a one-sided partisan agenda on our campus. Faculty administrators of the BC Justice, Social Justice Institute and student authors closely aligned with them responded with defamatory public and private accusations about Dr. Garrett, referring to him as an apologist for white supremacy and characterizing me as somebody who wishes to engage white supremacist ideas on campus. Tonight, Dr. Garrett will explore the ways in which education previously intended to preserve freedom of thought and intellectual rigor has increasingly become a place where some partisan faculty pushing social justice agendas attempt to silence those who challenge or disagree with them while simultaneously silencing people with fear of such accusations before they are yet to even speak. So I left that last piece in there because I think it's important to recognize the fact that for myself, that I often am afraid to speak about things that I have opinions on and actual information to back up sometimes those opinions. It's kind of hard when you are a person who's like, if I say this, then I'll just be labeled that. If I do this, then I'll just be labeled that. If I am this, then I'll just be labeled that. And that is what is happening. If you haven't felt this yet, it's because possibly you are not performing some critical thought. And I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm just suggesting that it might be a good time to like check out what's going on in your local community or whatever, because there's a lot going on. And there's a lot of reasons why we all should always be questioning. That is, you should never be like, yep, that's all true. If you're just agreeing with everything, you never have any kind of thoughts that challenges something or that asks a question like, hey, okay, why is this person doing this? 
Why are these people mad? If you're never asking that or you don't ask it for everything, because that's the other problem, right? You ask it for some things and not others, then it becomes a problem. So the timeline from here, I wanted to explain why I left that last bit in there because I contemplated taking it out, but I thought it was an important element to what is going on because it's free speech. If you're uncomfortable saying things you believe or you aren't questioning stuff you're hearing or you just shut people down because they think something different than you, that that's an issue. It's a problem, in my opinion. So here's a little bit of what happened. She brought us up to the September 12th thing. I'm going to bring us back because I'm going to start reading, well... I'm going to start playing some recordings of readings I did of articles because I had a feeling that that would be a little challenging, and it was. But before I start doing that, and I'll commentary in between and let you know I'm playing a recording. I'm not trying to, like, do anything sneaky here, but uh, most of these uh, read out loud uh, recordings of information being printed in local media only, basically. I, there's a couple here that I'm not sure how... I, I guess they could be considered internet news as opposed to local news, but still not uh, mainstream media. I am just going to give you a quick timeline of what happened for the rest of this just to help everybody follow along. So the speech or the presentation that you just heard part of the introduction to uh, took place on September 12th, 2019. In early October, and maybe even late September, it's unclear, uh, Aaron and Matt were requesting financial documents about how grants were being spent on campus, and that'll be relevant soon. And then mid October, I think it's 11th and 19th, the dates are somewhere in that neighborhood. Bond and Rosales filed complaints against Aaron and Matt's presentation that had happened like a month earlier, which seems weird. It seems odd that this is the first time that they decided to file a complaint because there were articles written right after the presentation, so, and with links to the entire presentation that's still available online and you can link to it yourself. Then in December of 2019, Matt did a radio show, which you'll get to hear a little bit later, which apparently shut down uh, mediations. And then there was pretty much nothing about this until about a year later when the investigation into the complaints that uh, Bond and Rosales filed had come to an end and had a decision. And in that decision, the person conducting the investigation, who I believe's named Ren, uh, I, I know his name, I looked into him, he's kind of a slimy dude, he's had lots of problems, harassment, sexual harassment charges, He's been involved in, it's Ren, like, I hate when I can't remember last names, but I'll 
I'll link a couple things to him. I wasn't planning on that, but it, I believe he conducted the investigation and then Hein presented it, the findings, and the findings he presented were that Aaron and Matt had been unprofessional. And then we're to where we are now. Well, I guess where we were in May, but how this has all evolved from there was that on May 25th in 2021, Aaron and Matt now are filing a lawsuit defending their First Amendment rights for something they did not even say. And you might feel a little confused right now because it's a lot to unpack, but the gist of what Aaron and Matt are having to defend is that they are questioning, or that they did question, actually Matt questioned and Aaron introduced, the idea that some of the public funding going through Bakersfield College might be going towards narratives that aren't about free speech or aren't about intellectual exploration or aren't about what higher learning should be about. And that is the problem. That's that this is this is why I feel this is so important is they didn't actually defame anybody or accuse anybody of misappropriating funds. However, that seems to be the main complaint. What they really did was say, hey, why can't we have an open discussion about this? So in order to really understand what's going on and to really follow along, and I know that this is going to take a while, so bear with me because I got lots of clips and lots of reading. It's going to take a minute, so hang in there with me. I'm going to start with the first article that was printed about these stickers that Aaron referred to. And so I'm bringing, now I'm going to start in basically chronological order so that we can all track what happened to get us here today. And this is where I start really uh, playing some recorded stuff. BC adjunct history professor Octavio Barajas spoke about the stickers being placed around campus. Barajas described the stickers as the same size as a name tag. Some read, Smash Cultural Marxism. The group, 100 Handers, is credited on the actual stickers. It contains their email, a website, and Twitter account, Barajas says. This is the first article that is written about these stickers. It's written by actually the editor-in-chief of the Renegade RIP, which is a, a, the Bakersfield College's a news art platform, paper, basically. that they're, they're college paper, right? Like So we're talking real local news here. Real tough to debate. This is something that is affecting them personally. And the thing that I found interesting about that article is that for the most part, it was already indicating a narrative that 
was questionable. So not long after, well, I guess a couple weeks after, uh, apparently lots of, uh, there was emails. There was, the campus was very concerned about these stickers and had definitely a different opinions of. And that's when Matt decided to write an opinion piece, and this is what he had to say. Is that critique, quote-unquote hate speech, or simply speech that challenges a dominant agenda on campus? How might the college have responded if the stickers read, quote-unquote, never apologize for being black, or, quote-unquote, crush capitalism? The Che Guevara banner predominantly displayed at the entrance to BC's recent culture night may indicate the answer. Does the hate speech accusation, along with the rips characterization of perpetrators as white supremacists, invalidate the stickers campaign's criticism or further substantiate it? We as a community need to be very thoughtful before discrediting opposing views as merely hate speech and then targeting it for exceptional legal action. He goes on further to say, I am neither endorsing the sticker campaign's methods nor its messages, but I'm asking that we take them seriously. Does our community's college devote disproportionate attention and resources to certain groups at the expense of others? Does that marginalize some students? To what extent is that appropriate? I think that was a valid question. I'm not sure that that question has ever been answered. Uh, certainly wasn't in following opinions. And uh, the next up is uh, Bond's opinion that was printed on uh, May 23rd of 2019. Quote, unquote, cultural Marxism circulates in right-wing discourse as a catch-all phrase for policies and initiatives that promote multiculturalism, diversity, and equity. But just as we shouldn't conflate conservatism with white supremacy, we shouldn't conflate diversity initiatives and social justice with Marxism, especially when it is our job to model precision and accuracy for our students. Doing so demonizes efforts that address real inequity and social injustices, linking them to a, a perceived un-Americanness. Saying that cultural Marxism is the quote-unquote driving force of quote equity programs throughout California and at Bakersfield College, end quote, misrepresents equity-minded programs and scholarships at BC as being influenced by a conspiratorial cabal bent on giving wealth and success to those who do not work for and earn it. In reality, the college's equity and social justice initiatives work to meet the needs of student populations who are often underrepresented in higher education and excluded from successes that are accessible to others in society whose place at the table has never been questioned, much less withheld or denied. It might be a good point in time to, to bring attention to the fact 
that we are talking about a community college. I attended a community college and uh, it's accessible to everybody. I went there as a uh, pregnant mom to be and uh, I met a vast array of people there. I'm not sure that a community college is unaccessible to people. If, if I'm wrong, please feel free to explain to me how you tried to attend community college or you know of somebody personally who tried to attend a community college that was denied or uh, held back from such endeavors. Because in my opinion, this type of college is, you know, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't have resources. I learned a lot at that community college. I went through multiple programs. I found out that I uh, actually have dyslexia and also probably should have been labeled ADD simply because my mind is, doesn't work like everybody else's. But And it was a great opportunity for me to learn multiple tools of how to deal with that. There were certainly people that were attending that college uh, at the same time that I was that had more resources available to them even at that point, even though we were in similar situations than I did simply because I'm a white woman, which I am. And okay, fair enough. I guess, right? Like, I shouldn't have all the same resources as somebody else in my same exact living situation. I could go off on how hard I fought to figure out childcare and book. I fought hard for my education in lots of ways that other people didn't have to, but that's okay. I did it. Was it fair? It's a good question, right? And then about five days after Bond's opinion comes out, there's another article that's happening where there's some interesting different perspectives about how we should feel about stickers. Let's listen to that. Quote, I think the stickers incite violence. The language they are choosing to use, the idea of something smashing something, is violent, end quote, Baraha says, said. Rosales even sees this as an opportunity to continue advancing conversations regarding diversity, respect, and equity. Garrett, who is also the director of the Liberty Institute on campus, thinks this also opens up discussions surrounding free speech, and he would be very interested in holding panels or debates on the topic. So now smashing stuff is violent. I mean, it is, depending on how it's done, but one could argue that smashing is something you could do like non-violently and also healthily. There's smash rooms all around the country right now. There's lots of arguments for this. So we'll, 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 we'll put this on the back burner for a second. And then we have another article that comes out two days later on uh, May 30th that from Paige Atkinson. Let's check that out. 
The article starts, a white supremacy group made their presence known at the tail end of the spring semester on Bakersfield College campus. And following the bold statement, along came apologists from the school's own staff. And then she makes a pretty confusing, well, she, she makes a statement and then backs it up with something, a quote that's very confusing. So she says, one glance at the 100 Handers official Twitter is enough to see the true goal of the group, a white ethnostate. Now she's quoting the Twitter page. We're an entirely anonymous international network of activists, each one a printing press in their own right, end quote. The group said on Twitter, quote, we make activism accessible to all, end quote. It might be notable to mention that this article appeared on um, a website that was designed to encourage young writers. And although I found what her, her, her writing's novice, right? She says something and then quotes it. It's called a whipsaw. If you say something that you're trying to back up and then back it up with nothing that actually relates to what you're saying. It's called a whipsaw. I found that a little confusing and interesting. And then she has some more to say because what her point of the article was is uh, student safety. So let's take a listen to what she has to say about that. This group is not conservative. It is blatantly hateful. Garrett reframed the argument of vandalism to a discussion on free speech. This shift completely misses the issue at hand. Student safety. This is not free speech. The Vandals have not voiced their opinions in any official capacity or asked for an academic debate regarding their hateful beliefs. This is about the presence of white supremacy and the possible dangers it poses to minority members of the student body. I have a couple problems with this. She uses the word blatantly, but... There was no blatant white supremacist messaging on any of the stickers that were put out. None of the stickers that were placed around the threat to the student safetyness of these name tag sized stickers that were just kind of placed out and about apparently and one happened to be on a poster. Sounds like there were several around and they had different messages. And I'm not sure that I agree with all these messages. And like Matt, I'm of the mindset that these could definitely be protests. I did graffiti. I have a graffiti tag from the early 90s. So I know how this goes. Sometimes you just put stuff up. And you're young and dumb and trying to voice your opinion and haven't figured out how to do it in a articulate, intellectual manner. Maybe these stickers that. Who knows? But the other problem I really have with what she said is that I kind of agree. Like, if you have something to say, you, there's avenues to say it correctly. But sometimes hoops to jump through are challenging. And... Uh, graffiti art, as far as I know, which one could argue that sticking name tag size stickers on something could qualify as graffiti art, would fall into that category. 
I don't know that stickers pose uh, danger to anybody. Uh, the idea that because there are stickers out there that are questioning stuff, that that means that there's a danger to people based on their ethnicity or race. I'm not sure that that's been well documented. I, I, I did look up to see if there were any historical findings of folks with that were posting stickers became violent with other actual humans. And I was unable to find any articles or news stories that back that up. So if you find something like that, please share it with me. But this spurs Erin to get into the mix and offer her opinion on June 5th. How do my colleagues perceive events differently? Garrett encourages us to consider the possibility the stickers contain protest speech and says academics should engage rather than discredit ideas we oppose. Bond convincingly describes the hundred-handers as an indefensibly xenophobic white nationalist group and he therefore defines the content as hate speech intended to make, quote-unquote, people unsafe, end quote. He cautions against, quote, granting legitimacy, end quote, xenophobic ideas by engaging them and asserts the college's duty to, quote, conspicuously, end quote, remind people that campus is, quote, inclusive and intolerant of hate, end quote. So now we definitely have an opinion on campus that is being put out there and reinforced that this is a hate crime and that what is happening is unsafe and that these name tag size stickers are threatening students. This is, this is what is being said. And funny enough, the next article that comes about, oh, so, uh, Matt's opinion piece came out on uh, June 5th of 2019. The very next day, Emma's article, which we had already seen back on the 28th of May, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, yep, 28th, is reprinted on another internet news website that is called The Recorder. I think that's Delano County. It's maybe, it's unclear as to why this piece was reprinted, especially since it wasn't uh, acknowledged that it was a reprint. Normally, if when you read a Yahoo News article, you can easily, quickly discern where that article is coming from because mostly they're reprinting other people's articles. So they cite them, give them the byline, etc. This recorder did not do that. It seemed like it was a new article. However, I'm glad they did that because I did get a chance to see that the picture that has been used in every article so far that has taken place was courtesy of Octavio Baraja. So he took a picture and sent it in to the Renegade Rip, which is the Bakersfield paper, and that's been the picture that has been running through. If you look at any of the links up till now, for sure, they all have the same picture. They're all courtesy of him. Not a big deal, but this is why I call him the provocateur or instigator. Then, two days later, in 
an opinion article, we find this uh, gentleman named Miguel Nidever that seems to be the only person so far that has chimed in that has no skin in the game. Complete, pure, just following what's going on, seems to be interested and has an opinion. And here's what he has to say. The second sticker Professor Bond is offended by is, quote, smash cultural Marxism, end quote. Once again, he makes no effort to analyze this message, but labels it as right-wing discourse and a call to violence. We are all familiar with references to striking down court rulings, shooting down ideas or concepts, getting rid of or eliminating, etc. Our courts have defended free speech as allowing all anti-government statement statements as long as they do not call for violence. Here he equates Marxism with social justice and diversity initiatives, thus avoiding the historical definition of Marxism as a system of thought which imposes its views on the citizens of a country, denying them freedom of speech, religion, and has resulted in the murder of somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million humans. I don't know who this guy was, but I like him. He points out some really good facts that, like, questioning this type of thinking is okay and isn't violent. It's asking, it's challenging ideals that are anti-American, but not just for the simple fact that they're anti-American, but because they are dangerous. But... That's just my thought. We, apparently, he shut a lot of people up because we didn't hear, again, from anybody um, on the media, really, until August, except for Matt, who did do a podcast and talks about cultural Marxism and has a discussion about what that is, so... I'm going to let him explain that a little more. I want I want to move over back to the the freedom of speech issue on campus real fast and I it, it's bugging me and I've been wanting to bring this up but um I think it's also my my issue with with academics now. This idea of we are a safe place, right? Or we are oh, a safe yeah. environment. And my my interpretation of safety is I'm not being beaten up. <laughs> right, Protect that's my from violence from violence, right? From what about physical harm. violence, vocal violence, uh, uh, literary violence. That the sign said, "Crush social Marxism." Right, crush is violence, right? Well, I think that's what the article says: is cr- crush is is inherently violence or smash, right? Smash is inherently and that's, violence. That's how a Marxist would read it because a Marxist would look for that sort of conflict. Well, didn't these guys go to? English class where they taught you figurative language and you know smash yeah. might just mean tear down or end. It's ironic you would say that because that, that, that argument's actually found in an earlier article in the paper a few days prior from an English teacher. Oh really? <laughs> so so well, I, um, I'm on your page with I'm, that. I agree with you though. I'm not so. an English uh, 
I, I agree with person, you. but I mean, I can't yeah, spell it to save my life. It's not a violent message to say. I mean, obviously, it's, it's symbolism, right? They're saying, get rid of, abolish, destroy this system that they don't believe in. Uh, it's like saying crush slavery. And maybe, it's, maybe, sorry. Go ahead. Um, maybe, could you, could you, like, explain cultural Marxism for somebody who yeah. might not understand? So, cultural Marxism, right? This is, uh, in the paper there, uh, uh, going back a few days, my initial article gave a brief two or three sentence of it, and then there was a counterpiece uh, arguing that, that I was, that the cultural Marxism is the boogeyman of the right to accuse anything on the left. That's really not an accurate portrayal. So I've, I've been hinting at this, this today so far, repeatedly, about the evolution of where these ideas are coming from. And if you go back to Marx, Marx is a student of Hegel. Hegel believes that the world is, the history of, is moved by the spirit of forces that are moving about and colliding and interacting. And two things collide and create something new, this dialectic. And Marx builds on this idea and he comes up with his Communist Manifesto and El Capital. And uh, he, he's trying to, to come up with a theory of history and how the world operates. Uh, and his theory is that there will be a revolution. There will be uh, underclasses rising up and taking over, and there'll be this wonderful thing. And Marx eventually dies, and his ideas continue to linger in Germany, especially in Europe. And eventually they evolve into what's known as the Frankfurt School. And the Frankfurt School is a bunch of German philosophers who believe in a lot of this idea of the poor rising up and how there's going to be change. And the Frankfurt School, uh, what really makes them special is one of their arguments is is that history shouldn't be, and society shouldn't just be observed and understood, but it should be, it's going to change, and we can play a role in changing it. We can, we can pull it apart, and the, the Marxist revolution never happened, but we can help it happen by pulling things apart and ushering it in and reorganizing a little bit, and, and then World War II happens, and those folks end up pouring out into France and America and elsewhere, and their ideas spread and evolve into postmodernism, uh, and that idea is continue in the 60s and 70s, when you have folks who are pulling everything apart, like my daughter, pulling apart the toilet paper, right? But you also have this remaining uh, argument within Marxist thought that's still lingering on that, no, we shouldn't just pull it apart. This We're pulling it apart for a purpose to, to put together our new social order, our new just order that will be fair the way we think it should be fair. And so this intelligentsia, this educated elite that think that they are the ones that know the right way to do this, they should be the ones to interpret the right way to put it back together because they know best. And we should all listen to them. And that's the founding of the social justice movement. Uh, but it's deeply Marxist. So I thought this was relevant because Matt is, at this point, hasn't even done the presentation, which is where the case um, starts for the complaints. And his argument is continues or all the way up until the point of the case happening was that these stickers were a, a political statement. And I think that's relevant because he's not, he's not mentioning or talking about finances or what, who's funding what or anything. And the only reason that that becomes relevant, which we'll find out later, is because he's talking about the articles and stuff that have been written up until this point. But the next article that comes out, and basically the last one before we get to the presentation comes out on August 5th um, in 2019. And this was a little interesting because the byline was, uh, the name was a little bit difficult for me to pronounce, so I didn't um, want to mess it up. So I put it into Google search to see how you pronounce it. Brought up the uh, Mecha Wikipedia site, which I'll put a link to. 
So I'm not sure who wrote this article, but I found it to be interesting that it linked back to them. Another interesting point about this article is that they used a version of epistemicide, or epistemic, I should say, um, including epistemology and epistemicide, um, 12 times in this article. But there were a few interesting points. One, the first thing that I noticed from the article was the very act of vandalizing a poster promoting epistemic diversity promotes a form of racism called epistemicide, which is the systematic suppression of someone else's knowledge. When anybody uses like a $25 word, I always, uh, twice in one sentence, I definitely need to research in different concepts. I, this particular word I've never um, encountered before, so I, I looked into that a little bit. And they further explain um, what they mean here. Epistemicide is a result of European colonialism, which inferiorizes or inferiorized if not appropriated, the knowledge of indigenous people throughout the world. Therefore, Western knowledge is hegemonically more represented in our modern-day institutions and schools. This alienates minorities. Documents such as El Plan Espiritual de Atzlan and El Plan de Santa Barbara use decolonial language that sounds provocative, but Miller's U.S.-centric point of view seems to not let her realize, quote-unquote, the legitimacy of the United States, end quote, rests upon its colonial foundations. That was a, a heavy, very dense amount of information. I definitely had to Google it. Um, it's, I, I would need to do a lot more research to really fully grasp what they were saying because they didn't expand on the plans that they mentioned and in my opinion, it felt like they were just trying to shut down an argument before they, they were trying, to, in my opinion, to shut down the argument by saying that Aaron is racist. And they go on to say it's easy for Miller and Garrett to argue the vandalism on our campus is merely protest speech because they're not people of color who were targeted by this act. They want to academically engage with this, quote, protest speech, end quote, because they adhere to institutionalized academic approaches that try to pass as neutral, transcendental, and universal, but are in fact Eurocentric epistemologies that, that claim to be so and regulate those of black and brown cultures to a secondary status. They clearly are trying, and from my perspective, are saying that Aaron and Garrett are racist, they, that they, they don't understand because they're white. And I think that it's clearly been proven. And now as we go into the next bit where we actually, I'm going to play multiple clips from the actual presentation that took place on, uh, in September of 2019, they are not talking about that at all. They were talking about the idea that people have a concern about cultural Marxism. And that was a huge point that they were making. So let's... Uh, and that they're and that the way that the college handled this was to shut it down and call it racist instead of opening up the the conversation and that's what matt's main point was but first before we get to matt um aaron in this case which i will also lay out a, more and 
read a bunch of the stuff from the court case after we talk about the presentation, it said that she, or the impression that they got from the the investigation, the, the determination of the investigation, was that they're being accused of questioning how people, or actually more than questioning, that they're being accused of calling out people and saying that they are misappropriating funds. So I'm going to play the quote first um, of Aaron's introduction where she talks about Bond and Rosales and Barajas and nowhere does she talk about money or question anything to do with how money was spent on anything. So let's start there. Dr. Reggie Williams, Dr. Nick Strobel invited Matt Garrett and Dr. Er, Professor Andrew Bond, one of the individuals arguing the other side, to host a public formal debate on campus. What a better example of intellectual rigor than to have two professors bear, uh, uh, discuss the merits of censorship and free speech. Dr. Garrett readily agreed. Professor Bond sent a list of several stipulations. Dr. Garrett agreed to all of them. I think there were eight. A few days later, Professor Bond regretfully informed those involved that he'd be unable to participate because he was too busy. He teaches a lot of classes. So Dr. Williams, ever eager for us all to debate each other <laughs> philosophically, reached out to instructor Octavio Barajas, inviting him to engage the topic. As Barajas was the one who led the call for campus members to report each other to campus law enforcement for inappropriate comments. Barajas declined. Dr. Williams reached out to the original founder of the BC Social Justice Institute, Dr. Oliver Rosales. Rosales agreed tentatively, saying that the date would need to be changed, pushed back a week till next Thursday, and that it really depended, because I don't know if you know, but faculty at BC are very busy. So somebody saying they're too busy is really a legitimate reason. He said he would only be able to participate if he received his previously requested reduction to teaching load. Despite receiving that reduction to his teaching load, he withdrew and instead hired a speaker for the exact same night he suggested for the debate to speak about white supremacy and the California Republican Party. It is in, within this politically rife context that Dr. Garrett explores the tale of two protests, free speech and the intellectual origins of BC campus censorship. Dr. Garrett? So it's clear that Aaron makes no reference to any type of funding of any sort during her introduction and when she's talking about the um, other professors on campus. She basically is just laying out the point that they had an opportunity to actually engage in the conversation, which is relevant uh, in the findings of the investigation that one of the points was that they didn't give, they didn't allow ample opportunity for Rosales and Bond to respond to these not made accusations because there were no accusations made. However, Rosales and Bond clearly had opportunities where they could have engaged in the discussion with Matt that they've been having publicly through articles. And so Matt does talk about money and I'm going to play that. He had a slide 
that I cannot that I cannot get access to. So he refers to a people without necessarily naming them. He is pointing to them on the slide. Everybody he's pointing to is somebody we've talked about already who wrote an article. So let's listen to what he had to say. Now, at this point, you might say, well, Professor Garrett, you want an open debate. You got it, right? We have an open sort of. I mean, I'm saying let's discuss it. They're saying don't discuss it. But there is some community. It looks like an organic discussion, right? Until you follow the money. Current soul news, right? This story was made possible with a grant from California Humanities in partnership with Bakersfield College. That's the byline. I thought, who at Bakersfield College is my institution calling me a white supremacist apologist? Which we all know is pretty similar to saying you're a white supremacist. My institution called me that? So I asked. What's going on? I asked our director of PR. Has our brand been hijacked or did our college call me a white supremacist apologist? So she investigated and they changed the byline to read, it was made by the California Humanities in partnership with Bakersfield College Foundation in the, with the Virginia Alfred Harrell Foundation. That's who paid for it. Now that doesn't appear on any of their other articles. They never say who paid for it. Why do you think they included who paid for it this time? Was there an attempt to maybe make it look like an institutional, everybody thinks he's a white supremacist, I don't know. So then the problem they made though is they listed the grant and I looked it up. If you look up that grant, yes indeed, Alfred and Virginia Harrell gave $20,000 to Bakersfield College Foundation. That money is managed by an account manager. That account manager gives it to Current Soul News, who publishes whatever they want or whatever the account manager wants. They're on their payroll. They publish things like uh, pro-social justice articles, pro-Octavio uh, Brajas and Oliver Rosales articles, several puff pieces on them, how wonderful they are for the community. They write a bunch of well, left-wing stuff. I mean, it's pro-immigration. That's okay. I mean, we have MSNBC, we have Fox News. You can have political views and news. That happens, right? As long as it's your own money and not paid for and endorsed by the state, right? And they also wrote the defamation of both myself and then a Baron Miller as well. The Mitch piece said that she wants to talk with white supremacists and advocate those views. Who's this account manager, right? It's account number 2207680. Do you want to know, like, who's paying for hit pieces? You have to find out yourself. Then look back at this page. You start to follow that money. This person's paying for these articles. Everyone in green is also getting paid by that same account manager. Oliver Rosales got paid $8,400 to do social justice last year, got paid $7,100 this year, also got reassigned time. I think he gets more uh, reass reassigned time uh, money, stipend, than anyone on campus, pretty much to do social justice activism. Barajas, he gets a few hundred. Andrew Bond gets 2,100. She got 300 to 600 allotted her from, from the board. Uh, yeah. And she actually is on a foundation scholarship, thing, a, fe a fellowship from Current Soul News paid for by the grant that this person controls. They're all on payroll. Is that an organic discussion from the community? Now, I'm not saying that the account manager made them write these things. I don't think that at all. I think they all wrote that because they all feel that way because they're all in the same group. But it um, seems like there's a little, you make the decision, what do you think of that? So that was clearly one of the clips that I did some editing on because there were parts where it was really quiet and hard to hear. And so I amplified those areas a little bit so that it wasn't blown out on the other areas. So just, just pointing out my editing skills need some improvement. But Matt says there, I don't, in my, from my perspective, when I listen to that, 
I don't hear him saying these people are misappropriating funds. What I hear him saying is, is that this wasn't a public discussion. This wasn't like people just having opinions like um, the the one gentleman who wrote the article that has nothing to do. His name was Nedever or Nedever, but he clearly had no in, interaction or, or reason to write. He was simply writing a, an opinion piece. Aaron and Matt are were writing opinion pieces that were not being, uh, weren't even, they weren't arguing that, I didn't even really feel like they were arguing that the stickers were right or that what was going on was okay. I think they were saying, why don't we take a look and see what they're really saying? And, and the topic they're bringing up is important because, again, there's some concern about cultural Marxism. And he does a whole little section where he talks about it and he talks about how Marxism evolves. And I, I had one part of it that I thought was very interesting. And since that's the main point that they're saying, I want, I want to listen to that as well. Here's a, another awesome philosopher, Karl Popper, back in 45. He wrote about how all of these sort of elitist interpretations of society, you have to do what we say because we're the ones who see outside the cave, that all of these are dangerous because they require us to all gullibly believe that those guys are the ones who know best and we should all just shut up and do as they say. He said that these types of approaches lead invariably to the attempt to impose our scale of higher values upon others in order to make them realize what seems to us of greatest importance for their happiness in order, as it were, to save their souls. I mean, I feel good about making you do what I think is right, because I know it's right. I tell my kids that all the time. Like, it's just right, just do what I say. I know I'm right. But it's not very democratic or inclusive. And I agree with him that the Marxist idea, a lot of them are most of the people I know who are socialists and claim to be socialist-minded believe this, that the country should be run by smart, intelligent people who will make sure that everybody is well provided for and will make the right decisions for the masses of dumbasses. And I think that that's a horrible concept. I don't like that. And I agree that that's not democratic or inclusive at all. And generally leads to communism, where a bunch of rich people have all the money and the rest of everybody else lives in squalor, is my view of it. Maybe you have a different view. I'm not sure. Matt also covers um, some concerns about the way that the school handled uh, and, and the response that some of the other people talk about. So let's listen in on that a little bit. To show you that, yes, indeed, that ideology is here and played out. Example number one, Andrew Bond's Californian article said, a more productive query would be to ask whether or not we should consider viewpoints based in hate, racism, xenophobia, viable and debate-worthy in an academic setting. To do so would be to concede that such views are on par with fact-based reason perspectives, granting them a legitimacy they don't deserve. We don't need to talk about those views because they're racist. Well, yes, if you call what you don't like racist and then you use racism as a label you don't have to discuss, perfect, you can eliminate anybody questioning your ideas. You just have to call them racist first. And if you're coming from a critical race theory and you think everything's racist you don't like, well, it's very easy to eliminate the other side. This has happened to me. I've been called a racist in conversations and it's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody who just dismisses you because you're because they are labeling you a racist. It's, it's a great way to shut down any actual discussion. It seems a little wild to me that that would be happening 
in this institute of higher education, we're supposed to be training people to think and teaching them how to learn and explore intellectual ideas and concepts. This plan doesn't jibe with that. He goes on to, he has a few other points, so let's listen to those. Second example, diversity, the sticker that went up, diversity at Bakersfield College, inappropriate comments will not be tolerated. Call public safety. If anyone says, I don't like social Marxism, you should report them. Because I don't like social Marxism is now racist. Is that what they meant? Maybe not, maybe so. They're suppressing that discussion. By demanding the interpretation of crushed social Marxism must be racist and therefore must be suppressed. Third example, in the email exchanges that follow from Octavio's email, Andrew Bond insists to the administration that we need to implement mandatory training for all faculty and staff. We'll make sure they all understand the right way, right? The good progressive uh, social justice way. Because we're out of the cave and they're not. So we're going to tell them how to think. And they're all going to have to attend because it's going to be mandatory. We're seeing this type of stuff happening all around. I mean, the whole Coke thing that blew up a few months ago, companies and schools that are insisting on cultural training. And I'm not saying there isn't a need to be culturally aware and to understand how certain things may affect groups at large. But shutting down people from having an opinion about what you're teaching or what is being taught it in these type of courses is not okay. It's not. I, I can say I disagree with this because and support that with facts where these type of trainings are basically like if you disagree with us and you don't do what we say, then you're clearly racist or whatever is that they want to make us. So and here's his final point um, that we're going to listen to that he made in regards to how the college handled stickers. And the fourth example, this one is a bit complicated, so go with me for it. But it's pretty interesting. Somebody leaked to Eyewitness News very early on, April 29th, 30th or so, that there were racist stickers on campus, hoping that the news would do a piece on it, right? Don't know who that person was. Somebody did. Then, Octavio Brajas and Oliver Rosales wrote, uh, they, gave the Renegade, they were the prime uh, resources for the Renegade Rip article, which, again, tried to make the focus, they tried to make the focus, white supremacists on campus. Then Oliver Rosales reached out to Current Soul News and asked them to make, got them, tried to get them to make uh, an article about white racists on campus. It's like someone's trying to make the media tell a certain narrative, isn't it? At this point, Matt Garrett, myself, decided maybe I should say, let's hold on, maybe it's not racism, maybe, maybe it's actually a talk about social Marxism. I wrote, I'm neither endorsing the stickers campaign methods or its message, but I'm asking that we take them seriously. Does our community college devote disproportionate attention and resources to certain groups? Does that marginalize some? Is that appropriate? Is it reasonable for a student to be upset that they didn't get the $475 check? Can we have that discussion without being called racist? Well, the answer is no. So at this point, we've pretty much wrapped up what Matt's presentation was. He started with talking about, um, he talked a little bit about uh, logic fallacies. He gave us kind of a rundown on how Marxism is playing into what's happening on campus and what's happening in with these stickers in particular. And then he they do a question answer section. I think that this was an interesting um, clip that I'm going to play next because we're talking September of 2019. And uh, here's what uh, how different things are 
when just two years ago, the word cancel culture wasn't even really a thing yet. Yes. That's a term I don't know. Okay. So the cancel culture... I don't tweet, though. Understand. Um, it's basically people um, who, I guess, um, do certain things uh, that is perceived by a large group of people, and then they're called, they're called out on Twitter, um, and therefore, like, canceled, basically. So um, I'm trying to think of a prominent example. So it sounds like the call out stuff. Uh, yeah, I think I think it was kind of I publicly was, embarrass someone. Yes. Yes. Accuse them of something. Mm -hmm. Can you repeat the question? So we asked how. Well, actually, I'm not sure we got to the question yet. We were laying down the terms. So yes. what's uh, the question? The question is just how do how do you think that kind of the things going on at BC pertains um, or I guess adds on to the viral like um, cancel culture going on right now? How do the things at Bakersfield College mm -hmm. pertain to the viral? call-out culture or cancel culture yes. on Twitter. Yes. Okay, well, so I don't really understand this cancel culture thing, so I don't want to step in it too far. Um, but the call-out culture, I understand, this mm -hmm. idea of calling people out. Um, and it happens all the time. People can be accused of being a racist or accused of being sexist or accused of doing something that's not right. And sometimes someone did something wrong and they should be, you know, way, wag of the finger, right? Um, but it sort of seems to be accelerating at a pace that's outstripping what evidence might actually substantiate, where you have someone say, well, that's racist, and it just becomes the gut instinct that it must be, because we all know everything's racist. So it, it, it takes advantage of this lack of evidence to just throw aspersions on anyone, and it can really ruin careers. I know in the last year here at BC, I can think of two faculty, three administrators, two faculty, one administrator, besides myself, who have been called out and accused of things egregious, affected, horrible things that have potentially derailed their careers. Um, and I think that's a lot more dangerous than the imagined what may or may not have happened without that, that's You're going to damage some people's careers, possibly, with these false accusations. It's interesting that that's a little um, premonition, because that's kind of what has happened. The Matt and Aaron's jobs are being threatened right now because of this investigation that was done. And based on this presentation that, that I just covered, you can watch the whole presentation if you like. The link is in the show notes. And decide for yourself. I, I picked out the stuff that I thought was relevant, but I encourage you, if you're interested and want to decide for yourself, please feel free to listen to the whole presentation. Uh, after, the, after their presentation, there were two articles that were written. Um, both were basically just reporting on what, what the happened in the presentation. They made a couple notes about what he did or whatever. Those links are also going to be in there. The one thing that I did notice is that neither of them mentioned anything about accusations of misappropriation of funds or anything of that nature. So that's the last thing that we hear in the news um, until December of 2020. So that's the presentation was in September of 2019. We don't see another article in regards to this until 2020. In the meantime, though, based on what the lawsuit says, I'm going to start to explain some of the parts of the lawsuit here. Even though this doesn't happen, the lawsuit doesn't actually get filed until May of 2021, but it tells us what's happened in this gap of time between when we see the presentation, the articles that are written about the presentation, and the next time we see an article in regards to this topic. So the first thing that becomes important is that in late September or well, actually, I'll read it verbatim what the um, lawsuit says. Uh, n number 22 says, In October 2019, uh, Professor Miller filed public records 
and this is in regards to financing. So then 23 says, Plaintiffs are informed and believe that on October 11th and 19th, 2019, uh, respectively, sorry, uh, Professor Bond and Rosales filed HR complaints against Dr. Garrett and Professor Miller arising out of the September 12th, 2019 lecture. So real quick point, uh, that's a month after. There were two articles that were written within a couple days of the presentation, but it wasn't until Aaron filed some requests for financial documents, that public records, that all of a sudden there's complaints being filed. So this, to me, sounds a little retaliatory, but, you know, I'm just presenting my, my view on it, right? Uh, in number 24, it says, During November of 2019, the Bakersfield College Administration attempted to mediate the, the issue involving Dr. Garrett and Professor Miller and Professor Bond and Rosales. However, rather than serve as a neutral mediator, recognizing the First Amendment issues at stake, Bakersfield College Vice President Billy Joe Rice asked Dr. Garrett to stop requesting public records related to the grants and to remove the publicly posted video of the September 12th, 2019 presentation. So that, was, that happened in November. In December, on December 3rd, uh, Dr. Garrett gave a 30-minute radio interview in which he discussed the collapse of critical thinking in the academic and again criticized the manner in which Bakersfield College faculty were, were directing grant funds. Within a few days following this radio interview, Vice President Rice telephoned Dr. Garrett and Professor Miller individually and advised that she was discontinuing the informal resolution process. She blamed Dr. Garrett's uh, radio interview for this action. So I found this radio show. I recorded it myself because there's you can't get to it with a link. And I'm going to play the part where he talks about funding at the college level. Again, not really calling anybody out specifically and doesn't even name any anything. It's pretty general I mean, he's talking about something specific, but he doesn't give any names or you, you listen and you'll see. There is also this concern about growing attitudes on campus. That there was, you know, this sort of group of folks that were really trying very hard to push that that foreign outside influence. They were writing grants and bringing in money to, to funnel money to social activist groups. And mm -hmm. uh, I got very concerned about seeing a narrative being created both on campus and in local media. Uh, the way that things were intentionally designed and released to the news. Um, I mean, we've even got a, a fake news website that's largely funded by the college. By, is it really? Oh yeah, there's there's grants that are being, the BC brand is used to acquire grant money and that grant money is, is funneled to a fake news website to promote a partisan agenda. So it he does say fake news website, but he doesn't point out which one he's talking about. He's not calling, he didn't call out anybody at all. He didn't mention anybody's name. It's hard to believe that this, I'm, I question whether, because I listened the whole 30 minute radio and most of it was Tim talking about the Liberty Institute and also covering some of the ideas behind what's that, why this institute exists. But it, there's not anything in it that is necessarily what I would consider slanderous or 
you know, libelist. I always forget which is which one is writing. I think slanderous is if you're talking, however it works. Anyways, that I just found it, I find it interesting. I'm curious if the vice president even heard the, the radio show or she just heard caught wind of it. So then further down in the complaint that plaintiffs are informed and believe that on January 6, 2020, Professor Bond and Rosales filed addendments to their complaints. To this day, the Bakersfield College administration has steadfastly refused to permit Dr. Garrett and Professor Miller to see these complaints. So they've never even seen these complaints. They have no idea what was said about them. They can't even defend it, which they cover here in a little bit. We'll get to that. There's another section where we talk about, uh, they talk about kind of the findings of the case, and this kind of wraps it up. It says, based upon the above statement and findings, Defendant Hine made the determination that Dr. Garrett and Professor Miller engaged in unprofessional conduct as defined in Section A.3 of Article 4 of the CCA Collective Bargaining Agreement in their statements and allegations regarding misuse and misappropriate misappropriation of um, uh, grant funds by Dr. Rosales and Professor Bond. So this, they did an investigation into the presentation and determined, and Hine determined that Aaron and Matt made allegations of misappropriation of funds and that that was unprofessional conduct, which is punishable by termination, just so you know. So then at the end... They kind of talk about, they, they break down some of that investigation. I can give you a copy of the lawsuit if you're interested in that as well and want to read all of it. It's like 21 pages, so it's it's a lot. But it, it, number 34, it says, In short, Defendant Hine reached findings and determinations that were perplexing or perplexual and false and carried with them the threat of further discipline up to and including termination. In addition, by classifying Bond and Rosales as so-called whistleblowers, defining whistleblowers in a manner utterly foreign to California law, Defendant Hine left Dr. Garrett and Professor Miller exposed to charges of retaliation and termination in the event they tried to publicly defend themselves. So if they even tried to defend themselves, they could end up being fired because the these folks are being considered uh, whistleblowers. I'm not exactly sure what the definition of whistleblower is in California or how it's classified, but it seems to me just on the face of it that not being able to see a complaint that is being lodged against you and having to defend yourself from something you're not even sure what it says and you didn't even do. They can't prove, they can't even show any evidence where they said something that was accusing these people of misusing funds. Matt did say that public funds are being used for social justice type uh, activities and speakers and such, but that's not the same thing as like accusing somebody of stealing funds or whatever. He's questioning how the funds are being spent and not whether whether somebody's doing something nefarious. He's saying, I think we have a right to question whether public funds that are being provided to this college should be going to support one-sided political ideologies. And I don't disagree with him on that either. So I'm just, I, I have to admit that as I was reading through all of this, it, it became quite alarming to me that 
And and as I've discussed it with Aaron at multiple points of this, you know, they've they feel they feel like they've got to kind of like now dig into everything because they don't even know they don't even know what the accusations are. They only know what the findings were. And even those don't make sense to them. The next time we see an article about this um, particular case is on December 13th to uh, 2020. And I think that this article is incredibly interesting. First, this writer, a lot of the stuff that he has on here is really, in my opinion, there's a lot of inaccuracies. He's calling, like, he's calling the KCCD, the, he's calling it the Khan Community College District instead of the Kern. And I don't know if that's, I mean, it's a written article, so maybe transcribing something, it, it got misspelled. I'm not sure. It just, it's clear that this person has a very slanted view. I don't know how he plays into this. It's written in the Telemundo, the article, the article title is Free Speech Rights and Reputations Clash. And it was written by um, Jose Gaspar for The Californian. And he's a columnist, apparently. So there's a part of this where he says, the public symposium was held on BC, on, or in BC on September 12th, 2019. According to administrative the administrative decision report, Miller has many statements suggesting that Professor Rosales' history and Professor Bond English are improperly using grants and BC resources to raise a variety of social funding was announced justice program. I, the writing on this is a little tough for me and it's hard to, to kind of sort through that. But Mil- Aaron did not at all mention anything about money being spent by anybody at all. So that's completely false. And I, I this article, I, I'm definitely posting all of my articles and listing what they are. So you'll, you'll, you'll easily be able to access them if you're curious. But, and this came out of nowhere. Uh, we're, I'm, it's not clear how he got this information or my guess is that somebody, either Bond or Rosales probably sent us to him, but who knows? I don't know. But the article is not reflecting accuracy in my opinion. And that's a perfect example of that because I played for you all the parts where Aaron was talking uh, about the guys that uh, were involved and none of it was about money, right? So then um, on the 22nd of December in 2020, there's an article that is in the College Fix and that is called uh, Professors Face Termination for criticizing funding of social justice activities at public college. And there's a quote in here that I thought was interesting. It says, the lawyer said he's been in touch with the general counsel's office at Bakersfield College. Investigators must vacate their findings because they are based on false grounds. At no time did Garrett or Miller accuse anybody of fiscal malfeasance or misappropriation of funds. The professors will file suit in federal court if the college goes through with punishing them for their speech, Wilner said. Wilner is the attorney, Aaron and Matt's attorney. So uh, there, then this article was also po- posted on another web- website the same exact day. So you've got two that there's there's some there's a little bit of interest in what's happening, but that's it. 
then we don't hear anything again for six months. And then that's after the lawsuit is filed and we have a few more articles in regards to the case being filed. Um, the first one happened on the 16th of June in 2020 and this was in the Bakersfield. BC professors file federal suit against college district officials over free speech. Uh, so this is kind of a wrap up and I you know, even though we've covered a lot of this, there's a couple of interesting points in this article. It says, months later in August of last year, Defendant Hine, at the direction of Burke and others, initiated an investigation to determine whether Garrett and Miller had engaged in unprofessional conduct in violation of C or KCCD policies. Less than two months later, the suit says, Hine issued a determination that Miller's instruction or introduction had implied the two professors who later filed complaints against her had misused grant money and that Garrett had repeated those allegations in greater detail according to the suit. The investigation included that Garrett and Miller had engaged in unprofessional, uh, unprofessional conduct. Uh, it goes on to say, Hine threatened further investigation and possible disciplinary disciplinary action, including job termination, if any further complaints of policy and procedure violations arose, according to the lawsuit. It says he recommended the, the unedited video be taken down from district websites unless it could be redacted to remove inaccurate or misleading allegations, which the plaintiff insists it does not contain. What should they remove? Like, how could they possibly remove anything that they didn't say? It's bizarre to me. So then, uh, I think this is a day later. Yeah, 17th. Yeah, the 17th. We get um, another, uh, the, the no local news, the uh, KGET actually runs a short news clip on it and have and they say this Garrett and Miller's attorney Arthur I Wilner a Los Angeles based lawyer specializing in first amendment cases said in the lawsuit and during a phone interview Wednesday that the case is an example of a larger problem in which people exercising their rights to free speech at college campuses across the country are being silenced by administrators acting on behalf of faculty members and students opposing the views expressed the clear purpose of this illiberal movement, this suit states, is not merely to investigate and discipline those like Garrett and Miller who have expressed disagreeable ideas, but to chill the speech of and serve as a warning to other faculty members that the better course of action is to self-censor rather than risk suffering adverse employment consequences. And I agree that is the bigger issue that because it's not just about telling people like Aaron and Matt to who are speaking up and, and saying, hey, can we look at this from a different point of view? Maybe this is what they have to say. Let's talk about what maybe the pro maybe a problem that is affecting a, a section or a large portion of our student body. No, it's this is this type of case is absolutely trying to shut down anybody from doing anything of this nature. And I don't know about you, but I certainly have found myself doing some self-censorship uh, in the last couple years because not all my ideas are really uh, popular in, in some circles. And so, you know, I, there's lots of topics where I have very different ideas than certainly the mainstream media is uh, in 
inclined to believe. So I agree that this lawsuit's very important. It is why I'm covering this. And this won't be the last episode I probably do about this. There's one, there's been a couple other things that happened um, since then. On June 22nd, I actually attended KCCD Board of Trustees Zoom type meeting. Uh, the entire meeting was about the lawsuit as far as I know. And the entire thing was closed. And uh, I sat in a room waiting for them to come into open uh, public, uh, open to the public. And once they got, once they got out there, there was some, we were waiting for people to join back into the meeting and talk. There was a couple of things that went down, but basically they said no actionable decision was made and they wished well to a couple of people who were leaving the board. However, luckily there was an article that was printed on June 29th that included the um, Matt's, what Matt said in a previous meeting, which I think is, there's a couple points that he makes that are really relevant. So let's listen to that. My name is Matthew Garrett and I am a professor at Bakersfield College. And this morning in close session, you will be addressing a lawsuit that I have filed against the district for violating my civil rights. I gave a public address in 2019 that, among other things, questioned the partisan motivations of the college's use of grant funds. This sort of discussion is the core of constitutionally protected free speech, and at no time did I make any allegations of criminal misconduct. Nevertheless, KCCD issued a bewildering condemnation for my public remarks, built upon demonstrably false assertions, and requested the removal of any copies of my lecture from district servers and openly threatened me with termination as well as the faculty member who dared to introduce me to speak this is an unacceptable violation of our right to free speech but more than that this wrongful determination signaled the district's willingness to sacrifice my rights to appease a faction associated with the social justice institute who have continued to collude with the administration and retaliate and harass me ever since the district released that wrongful determination. And he goes on to explain what happens, what retaliation has happened since then, which I think is notable to point out. I do not bring this lawsuit lightly. I would have preferred the district admit its mistake, retract, and correct the misplaced condemnation and save everyone the trouble. Unfortunately, the district's council withdrew from mediation because, he explained, faculty associated with the Social Justice Institute did not approve of mediation. This is but one of many examples that suggests a strange hierarchy in the district's decision-making processes. Over the following months, I have been repeatedly retaliated against by the same Social Justice Institute faculty, campus administrators, and KCCD general counsel. I have been investigated on all sorts of spurious complaints and am currently under investigation for two complaints. One related to my personal YouTube page and I suspect the other centers on my social media posts. My record requests have been stalled and rejected while general counsel has approved similar requests with faculty associated with the Social Justice Institute. So I got that, those links from uh, an article that was printed um, in just the news. Uh, one of the quotes in, in that article that I thought was pretty interesting was, as an attorney, Hine knew that their speech was not 
de defamatory and that Rosales and Bond don't qualify as whistleblowers under California law, yet he made these claims to, quote, throw a bone, quote, end quote, to them. Bond responded by sending a campus-wide email declaring victory over Garrett and Miller, further cementing lies about their speech and their alleged white supremacism. The day before that article came out, there was also an article from FIRE, uh, faced with firings, Bakersfield professor sue school over criticism of grant allocations for partisan causes. One of the parts of this that I thought was interesting, it says, as a public college, Bakersfield is bound by the First Amendment to respect the expressive rights of its employees to speak as citizens on matters of public record and concern and engage in, oh, sorry, of public concerns and engage in whistleblowing. Left unaddressed, Bakersfield's decision to investigate and threaten the two professors will have a chilling effect on academics' ability to discuss pertinent and controversial academic and financial issues. Discussions that will not, that will likely involve criticism of fellow faculty members and the institution itself. If the college, college's punishment is allowed to stand, it bodes poorly for the free speech rights of faculty to criticize the institute institution or one another. And it, it talks about some other cases around the country that have had similar types of issues and wraps up with this. Too often, institutions of higher education seek to dissuade controversy, controversy dispute, or conflict by targeting protected speech. This law resulted from a complicated and tense situation that has implicated specific people who may not have wanted to be named but as the complaint states, when a professor acts as a dissenter, quote, a faculty member's constitutional rights cannot be bargained away in order to satisfy the interest of competing groups on campus, end quote. So that's kind of where we're at at this point. I access the court information online using a, a program called PACER. They're, it's basically free. It, it keeps a tally of how many documents you download, and if you spend less than $31 in a quarter, you it, the fees are waived. And so if you're just looking into, like, a singular case, you're probably not going to spend that much. But if you're using it regularly, you might. There was another interesting thing that has happened since then. Uh, it seems that possibly the judge that was assigned to the case, there was possibly a change in judges that were assigned to the, the case, and that something that I was going to look into down the road and try to figure out how, why that might happen because there was a judge, a zero judge, and now a one judge. And so we're just, that, that seems a little odd. Um, and the first court date that we have, uh, that they have set right now is August 23rd. I'm sorry. Yeah, August 23rd. So it will be a while probably before I talk on this again and uh, keep you posted and it may not, it probably won't be as long as this because I'm not going to cover everything that's led up to it again, but just to keep us posted on what's happening because I think this is a very important issue that we really, that should be getting a lot more attention because it's happening all over this country. It's happening in all kinds of different places, but it definitely shouldn't be happening on college campuses that are receiving public funding. And that is the point right there. I've got an RSS feed that is also going to have a link 
if you have some comments, if you have information about this case, if you would like more information about this case, any, you're always welcome to reach out to me. I'm always interested in what you have to say. And that's what I got to say today. Y'all take it easy now.